Would you open your Bibles with me to the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. We'll be looking at chapter four today in God's word from the gospel of John. There are other Bibles available for you in the pew. If you're without one, you can find our sermon text at the bottom of page 888. If you would join us in reading along. you found your place, can you stand for the reading of God's Word? John chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hear the Word of the Lord. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples... He left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, your word is living and active sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We are not hidden from your sight this morning. All of us are naked and exposed to the eyes of Jesus to whom we must give account. He knows what is in us. He sees our greatest need. He exposes our thirsty souls for what they really are, needy for eternal life. So we confess our great need for that eternal life this morning. We, we agree with you that we are thirsty. We feel this thirst within us. And we agree that we often seek to quench our thirst with things not pleasing to you. 
forgive us and come now to satisfy us with what is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The main point of today's message is this. Jesus gives eternal life to all peoples who are desperately thirsty. Jesus gives eternal life to all peoples who are desperately thirsty. That implies that we have a desperate need for spiritual drink. That apart from this spiritual drink offered to us here in the gospel, we will not have eternal life, but we will suffer eternal death. It also implies that Jesus alone supplies spiritual, the spiritual drink we need to gain eternal life. We are desperately thirsty people, separated from God, heading for eternal death. And Jesus is the all-sufficient supplier who gives us life. Jesus gives eternal life to all peoples who are desperately thirsty. We see this in Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman. But don't miss how the Apostle John takes us to Samaria with Jesus... In verses 1 to 3. Don't overlook how John is setting the stage to ensure that once we arrive with Jesus at the well in Samaria where he meets the woman, we know how to listen in on the conversation between him and the woman. John is telling us how to read the rest of this story in verses 1 to 3. He says... Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, this is the beginning of a pattern we see throughout the Gospel of John. As you read along in John's Gospel, you'll notice a pattern of events in which Jesus reveals his glory, he gains some followers, then he heads to Jerusalem, he's opposed by the Jews, especially the Jewish authorities, and then he departs from the city. This series of events happens at least four more times, and with every recurrence, the opposition to Jesus gaining glory gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger until... You reach chapter 12, verse 23, where Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Which basically means the time has come for me to die for sinners according to my Father's will. Now here's why that's important for understanding verses 1 to 3. Jesus isn't leaving town Because he's scared of the Pharisees. 
His Father loves Him and has given all things into His hands, including what happens with the Pharisees. Chapter 3, verse 35. He's not scared. The reason He's leaving is that it's not His appointed hour to die. By leaving Judea to come to Galilee, he's not following the impulses of a sinful nature like we do because he doesn't have a sinful nature. His nature always loves submitting to his Father's will. By coming to Galilee, he's obeying his Father's will every step of the way on his journey to the cross to die for our sins. And this story with the Samaritan woman confirms that that's what's going on. It says in verse 4, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to. We're not speaking merely of geography here. Better roads to Galilee. It was the Father's will He had to pass through Samaria. Why? Look with me at verse 23 of chapter 4. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and the truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. The Father is seeking people to worship Him. God wants this Samaritan woman worshiping him in truth along with countless others. And the way he seeks her out is by sending his son to Galilee through Samaria. Jesus will even go on to say in verse 34, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John is giving us another glimpse at Jesus obeying his Father's will to show that everything Jesus does before his crucifixion helps us understand what he achieves through his crucifixion. Every encounter with Jesus in this gospel gives us opportunity to stop and reflect and consider what Jesus achieves for sinners through his sacrificial death. And in this case... With the Samaritan woman, we see that part of what Jesus achieves in his death is just what I said earlier. He gives eternal life to all peoples who are desperately thirsty. John's account of Jesus talking with the Samaritan woman unpacks this truth in three ways. First, it shows that Jesus pursues us in our need without distinction. Jesus pursues us in our need without distinction. So if we broke down the main point of today's message, he gives eternal life to all peoples who are desperately thirsty. This would be the to all peoples part. Without distinction, Jesus pursues us in our need. According to his Father's will, Jesus comes down to the town of Samaria where there is a well. Jacob's well, it says. And in verses 6 to 7, he said, John says that he stopped at the well to rest and a woman came to draw water. And Jesus says to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away. The Samaritan woman then said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then John 
tells us why she responds in that way. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. The word have no dealings with suggests not using the bucket together. Jews and Samaritans, they don't use together, even if it's a bucket to draw water. To a Jew, a Samaritan was a political rebel, a racial half-breed, a religious phony. You even get a sense of what they feel about the Samaritans when they call Jesus a Samaritan in chapter 8, verse 48. Are we not right in saying that you are Samaritan and have a demon? The closest illustration that I could think of from our own country's history that might help you understand what it means for Jews to have no dealings with Samaritans is that of a public water fountain labeled whites and colored under the Jim Crow laws prior to the Civil Rights Movement of 1964. Cruel, ugly hatred. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans, Jesus. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? What we learn here is something we all need to take home with us about our Savior. Our Savior pursues sinners in their need without distinction. He pursues people like Nicodemus, see that in chapter 3, a ruler of the Jews, Proficient in religion, accepted by society, wealthy, morally upright. And he pursues people like this woman from Samaria, a foreigner, a social outcast, poor, a moral failure, five marriages later and still sleeping with another man, we'll learn next week. So whether a self-righteous moralist like Nicodemus or an unashamed prostitute like this woman, Jesus pursues sinners without distinction. Jesus knows it's publicly awkward for him to sit down at the well, to speak with a Samaritan woman, to ask a woman for a drink, and an adulterous woman at that. He knows what the people will be saying. This is a guy that reclines at the table with tax collectors and sinners. He receives sinners and eats with them. He knows his disciples will be surprised to find their rabbi talking with a woman in public at lunchtime. He knows he's acting against all the social stereotypes. And that's just the point. Christ makes no distinctions in pursuing the salvation of others. He doesn't hesitate to relate to this woman for her eternal good. And he will not hesitate to relate to you either. Jesus pursues Jews and he pursues Gentiles. He pursues those who think they've got it all together and he pursues those who could give a rip about anything. He pursues classy businessmen enslaved to their money and he pursues bitter poor people who wish they had more money. 
He pursues Asian people and Indian people, black people and white people, bad sinners and the chief of sinners, married people and divorced people, people in high places and people in low places, American people and Chechen people. Jesus makes no distinction in pursuing people in their need because they all have the same need. The need for him. He didn't make distinctions when he saved any of us. There's nothing in us that attracted him. He pursued us unworthy as we are in all our many Gentile colors with all of our many various pagan sins. Jesus came after us to win our hearts to himself. He made no distinction in saving us and therefore we should never make distinctions in winning others to him. Test yourself here. How, well, how much do you believe this about your Savior? How well do you follow your Savior in pursuing others in their need without distinction? I'm not denying that we should use discernment in bringing the gospel into the lives of others. There are precautions to take in certain settings, depending on the nature of their sins... There are contexts that would be unwise to minister in alone. There's also the question of upholding justice wherever we can in our engagements with others. But, assuming we're faithfully answering all of those questions, how well do you follow Jesus in pursuing others without distinction? Would you have been quick to speak a word about Jesus to this woman at the well? What about the woman down the street who gives herself over to sinful sex every weekend? What about the fellow next door when you meet him at the mailbox every afternoon and you know what he's enslaved to? Do you fear what others might think of you? Even others in this church if you show up to care group with the awkward guy, as if, as if we're not awkward. <laughs> when a church gathering like this closes and we have visitors peppered throughout the congregation from all sorts of backgrounds with all sorts of sins, are you quick to love them and show them hospitality and invest in them, even when it means your tears your time after the service, maybe skipping a lunch, maybe requires your, your money. When we call for assistance in a neighborhood outreach to get the gospel into the lives of the people in white settlement, is any part of your choice not to come related to your preference to see nobody different than yourself in this assembly? Or maybe it is that you just haven't ever sat down and thought of how Christ saved you. He overcame the barrier between you and heaven by becoming a man. He overcame the barrier between you, a Gentile, and him, the Jew, by smashing the hostility through the blood of his cross. He overcame the barrier between you and God by suffering in your place on the cross. He overcame the barriers you sinfully erected between yourself and others by making you all fellow heirs with Christ in his justifying grace. 
At every turn, Jesus pursued you unhindered by your ethnicity, your social status, or your degree of sinfulness. And then he says to you in chapter 20, verse 21 of this gospel, As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. As the Father sent me, pursuer of those in need without distinction, so I am sending you. If we know our Savior well, if we are united with Him and love what He loves, we will say with with Paul, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians. How many barbarians have you loved this week? I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone, to everyone who believes. So that's what we gather first. Jesus pursues us in our need without distinction. Secondly, we see that Jesus exposes our greatest need. He exposes our greatest need. If we think back to our main point, Jesus gives eternal life to all peoples who are desperately thirsty. This is the desperately thirsty piece. It highlights something about our need. It's not that Jesus merely pursues sinners to strike up a good chat, as if all is well on earth. As the light of the world, Jesus came to expose our darkness. He cannot help Being the light of the world, he cannot help but enlighten sinners like us of our greatest need. The Samaritan woman responded the way she did because ultimately she doesn't know who Jesus is or why Jesus has come. She's kind of like Nicodemus was. And so she totally overlooks her true need for eternal life. She should have said... When Jesus said, give me a drink, she should have said, I have nothing to give you. If anything, it's me that needs you. But she doesn't. So very patiently, Jesus guides her into the real truth of the matter. She needs to see, and we need to see, that our greatest need of all is something only Christ can give, namely living water. Verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What's the truth here with this woman and with us? The truth is that she is a desperately thirsty woman, and only the living water Jesus offers is able to satisfy her thirst. This isn't the first place we see living water. The Old Testament speaks of God himself as being the fountain of living water. For example, David says of the Lord in Psalm 36, verses 7 to 9, Psalm 36, How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. And listen to this. And you give them drink 
from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. David compares God himself to the fountain of life. He is the wellspring that sustains his people with life, with spiritual vitality, with covenant blessings, with incalculable delights of heavenly abundance. Or many of you will remember Psalm 42 that was mentioned earlier in the service. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. Hear the parallel? God is being compared to all-satisfying water, the flowing water. As a deer plants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. And then he goes on. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. So this is where every one of us is defined ultimate satisfaction in the all-satisfying God of the universe. We were made to drink from the infinitely satisfying river of his delights. Our souls are to be satisfied in him alone. Jesus is right. If we knew the gift of the infinitely glorious God himself offered fully in the person of Jesus Christ, we would go to him alone for drink. But here's the problem. We don't. We don't go to him. We don't find our satisfaction in God alone. We don't come to Jesus for living water. We reject him in an attempt to find satisfaction in lesser things. More money, another job promotion, extra securities, fancier wardrobes, latest video games, classier cars, the next television series. Maybe you drink in. Your drink is revenge. You enjoy smothering your fellow students with your arguments, cutting down the next preacher on your blog, and criticizing every church in town, including your own. You feed off of it. Maybe you thrive on knowledge, but quite apart from humbly submitting yourself to God and using that knowledge to serve the good of others. Or maybe you've sought satisfaction in life in the same way the Samaritan woman did. Moving from one marriage to the next, one boyfriend to the next, seeking your fulfillment in relationship after relationship after relationship without satisfaction. Where is your life proving that you are not satisfied with God Himself? Where do your eyes wander throughout the day, men? Where do your eyes wander? If they're wandering towards sinful things, it's exposing that you have a thirsty soul and your flesh is trying to satisfy it with something that is foreign to what it was made to enjoy. God himself. Where are you discontent with Christ? Unstable. Moving from this church to the next church, from these friends to the next friends, from this thrill to the next thrill. You can name them. You can name them right now. Because we don't seek our satisfaction in Christ, we are a lot like Israel was when God sent them into judgment. God sent them into judgment in Babylon because they weren't finding their satisfaction in Him. Jeremiah chapter 2, 
Verses 11 to 13 say this. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? That's Israel. That's Israel seeking satisfaction in her idols that she's created, that he's created over her covenant Lord. Has a nation changed its gods even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate. He's saying all of heaven, all the armies and the heavenly hosts should be shocked at what Israel is doing. She has committed, he says, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. This is where we are. Israel, is a, Israel and her sin is a parable of us and our sin. This is where we are in our sinfulness, just like them. This is how we respond to our spiritual thirst apart from Jesus Christ breaking into our lives in order to change it. We have a desperate thirst, a thirst that will never be quenched by our own doings. We don't make fountains. We make cisterns and broken ones at that, silted bottoms and all. We are thirsty, desperately thirsty, just like this woman. And the only one who can truly satisfy us is Jesus Christ, God Almighty in the flesh. Ask of him and he will give you living water, not for your stomach, but for your soul. Only the water that Jesus gives will satisfy your soul's thirst. That's why he pursued this woman in Samaria and that's why he came from heaven for you. To pursue you in your need. To expose your greatest need for true life-giving drink. And now lastly, to show you that your greatest need is met in Him. Let me say that again. Jesus came to pursue us all in our need. In His coming to us, He exposes our greatest need. We just saw that. The need for living water and life with God. And now third, Jesus provides for our greatest need. So going back to our main point, he gives eternal life to all peoples who are desperately thirsty. This is the he gives eternal life part. The woman is still interpreting matters quite literally as she continues in verses 11 to 12. Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? In other words, you forgot to bring your bucket, Jesus. Jesus is offering to meet her deepest need with living water from God, and she's hung up on the fact that he forgot to bring his water pail. Come on, Jack and Jill. You know the nursery rhyme? Jesus is so patient with us. She goes on. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. So not only where's your bucket, Jesus, but who do you think you are? 
Have you got a better source of living water than Jacob's well? And Jesus responds basically with, you can't even begin to fathom the abundance of living water I'm offering you. Read his words with me in verse 13. Everyone who, think, who, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's Jacob's well. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. That's Jesus as well. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So to answer her questions, there's not a bucket that can hold the life I'm talking about, ma'am. And I offer you something infinitely better than Jacob. Jacob's gift could only go so far in providing physical sustenance for a time. But what Christ offers her endures forever. How so? Because what he offers is a relationship with God himself made possible through his death and resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit. Turn with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. A couple of pages over, page 893 of the Pew Bible. And look with me at verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Sound familiar? Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So the same imagery we've seen, we've been seeing in chapter 4. We have a thirst, we come to Jesus for drink. And he gives us living water. Then John tells us what he means in verse 39. Now this he said about who? The Spirit. This he said about the Spirit. Whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. That means in his death and resurrection. Glorified in his death. Being lifted up in his death and resurrection. True spiritual drink, the living water, the spring of water welling up to eternal life is God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. This is why coming to Jesus for drink results in never going thirsty again. This is why the water Jesus gives is living. This is why when... This is why... When his water is inside of you, when it's inside of your soul, it wells up to eternal life because it is the eternal spirit of God. He has infinite supply of grace. He has infinite love to pour out within our hearts. The life he has, it never runs out. It never had a beginning. It never runs out. That's what it means to be God. He has infinite resources to satisfy our, really, our weary souls because He is God. He is God taking up residence in the soul of man to produce eternal life. To produce in us now the life we're looking forward to in the age to come. Where there will be no more thirst. Revelation 7 and 22 say. Jesus isn't offering physical water 
such that once you've drunk, you still die. He's offering to satisfy our desperate thirst by giving you God himself in the Holy Spirit. Such that we're no longer spiritually dead, but we're spiritually alive. Such that we're no longer building broken cisterns that never satisfy, but drinking from God himself who always satisfies. Such that when the longings for life and joy come, we no longer turn to the world's emptiness to fix these things because we're already receiving from God's fullness. And what makes this relationship available to us, the reason Jesus can offer such life to us who believe in him, is that he removed every obstacle to us obtaining it through his death on the cross. It's the reason we, unworthy as we are, can receive such life from him because he's already died to give us full access to eternal life. He took away your sins. He cleansed you from all unrighteousness and filth. He clothed you with his righteousness. He united you with himself that you might partake of his spirit. You might have His Spirit dwelling within you, giving you full access to eternal life. He took away your sins forever and united you to God Himself. He's given you full access to eternal life. Not partial access. Full access. Full access to eternal life with God mediated through His Spirit. And... God raised Jesus from the dead such that that eternal life that we've been talking about might be mediated to you through receiving the Holy Spirit. When you have a relationship with Christ, you gain what the prophets longed for in the day of salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Hear what Jesus is saying, that your soul may live. When we come to Christ, he forever satisfies our thirst with eternal life in God's presence, achieved through his cross and mediated through his Holy Spirit. Jesus pursues us in our need without distinction. Jesus exposes our greatest need for eternal life and Jesus meets our greatest need through his cross and the gift of the Spirit. Jesus gives eternal life to all peoples who are desperately thirsty and come to him. Are you thirsty this morning? But finding satisfaction with the world, forsake the world's cheap imitations for life and come to Jesus that you may truly live. Are you striving for that which does not really satisfy? Maybe you're finding yourself in the place of the Samaritan woman this morning precisely. Is that you? Come to Jesus and delight yourself in a loving, life-giving relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. Is your soul weary and scared and tired and beat down and disappointed with the people or the circumstances around you? 
The answer is not change locations, quit my job, become hopeless, get revenge. The answer is keep coming to Jesus. Keep drinking from the fountain of living waters. He will never disappoint you. He never tires of you coming to him. He died that you may have this life. He's not overwhelmed by your need. Instead, he's infinitely wise to discern what you truly need and then infinitely powerful to meet that need. Come to him. Come to him this morning, brothers and sisters. Come to him and he will satisfy you. That's why he came to this woman in Samaria and spoke with her. That's why he came from heaven to earth for us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I pray that you would satisfy our weary souls with yourself. I pray that we might ask of Jesus regularly for this life that he offers. We are grateful he came and gave his life for us. We are grateful he ever lives to give this life to us. And we are grateful that he's coming one day again to bring it in full. Where we will no longer experience it by faith, but by sight. Until that day, keep our faith strong and feasting upon his living water alone. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.